As one of our most prolific living writers, Stephen King has been weaving the webs of our nightmares into terrifying tapestries for nearly 50 years. A blue-collar craftsman, King has toiled in several mediums from novels and short stories to film, television, and comic books. But what is the true essence of a Stephen King story? What makes his yarns so haunting and enduring? And what unique qualities does he bring to storytelling? Join the Bonsai Boys, Jay and Travis, as they explore the work of King in this four-part series. Stephen King. Jay. Sir. You have consumed some king at this point. Mm-hmm. Digested. Not Burger King, Stephen King. Well, I'm not I'm not judging you. If you want to eat Burger <laughs> King, you can. Um, so actually now, prerequisite question. Uh, what's your favorite Burger King order menu? What's your favorite uh, thing on the King? I'm not a big Burger King fan. I had to eat it a lot growing up because it was one of the only fast food restaurants we had in the base. But so I know the menu pretty well. What's your favorite order? You know what I like still? Just the regular, uh, like the double cheeseburgers. Mm. And because they, they, they taste exactly how I remember as a child. Not the Whopper, yeah. just the regular cheeseburger. No, yeah, just well, the regular. The charbroiled. You like the charbroiled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mustard and pickles. And dude, it brings me back. I haven't eaten Burger King since I was a teenager, but I used to eat it every day for lunch. Um, I thought that one of the most unique things on their menu, as far as taste-wise, I don't know if they still offer these, were the long chicken sandwiches. Remember those? Mm. They had them long, mm. almost like a, like a mini sub. Yeah, I remember those. It was like a breaded chicken patty, and it had like mayo on it. And it was a little bit tough now, but at this, the time, it was a flavor and a, a, a sandwich you could only get at Burger King. Hmm. Weird, mm. wild stuff. <laughs> so Johnny, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. I was both. I was Ed, and then I was Johnny. It was I was trying to pull it off. Here's Johnny, Stephen King. Uh-huh. I want to know if you could kingify mm-hmm. any story. So a story exists. It could be a movie or a novel, whatever you want. What would you kingify? Because we're gonna be talking about some king. What would you kingify? You know what I was just, for some reason, again, I know I've said this exact same thing, but as you were saying that, what popped into my head was Romeo and Juliet. Oh, wow. Bravo. Kingifying any Shakespeare. Huh? Kingifying yeah. any Shakespeare would be fantastic. Be go on, go on. I'm listening. Uh, you, listeners can't see this, but my, my uh, <laughs> knuckles are perched under my chin. Take this further. Romeo you and know, Juliet, uh, kingified. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet, I mean, you could somehow... Um, there's got to be a, a part where someone goes insane. Mercutio. Like, Mercutio. Because he's already... Okay. He's got PTSD, a PTSD character. Oh, let me, give you, let me give you a little taste, Jay. 
I see Queen Mab has been with you. She is the fairy's middith, and she comes in a shape no bigger than an agate stone upon the forefinger of an alderman, drawn by a team of newt. And in this shape, she goes night by night through lovers' brains until they dream of love. Or courtiers' <laughs> kisses on courtiers' knees, which thus the angry math with blisters doth plague. Oh, so we got dreams, we got insanity. Both mm. king things. Mercutio is a very king character. I can see tragic that for ending. Sure. Tragic, mm-hmm. depressing ending. That's that's ripe for something. There's got to be a, something. It's got to go more horrible than that. Young teenage protagonist. Uh, so, mm-hmm. what would you drop in to make it uh, uniquely? What would King do? What twist would King put into it? Um. Gosh. Oh, there would be, I feel like, in, so, in Romeo and Juliet, um, Romeo writes Juliet a, a letter that he gives to Balthazar that never gets to Juliet, and which causes the confusion over uh, his death, because she never gets yeah. the news that he's faking this, this whole thing. Uh-huh, I right. feel like King would put like a body part in that letter. There would be something, it wouldn't be a letter, it would be, there. I don't know if it has to be that scene, but there needs to be like, a character has to disfigure themselves in order to pull off this ruse, wedding, and coupling. Mm. I like that. Here, okay, hear me out on this. The letter somehow gets either misinterpreted or intercepted where he's actually tricked into killing her. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Where there's this sense of um, what he he perceives some lunacy in Juliet that he has been betrayed, and in yeah. his his uh, uh, state of disarray and betrayal, he acts out on his primal urges and stabs Juliet or poisons Ju- stabs Juliet, and then looks at his dying. Like, and she says, it was this. And he weeps over her, his body. Ooh. Yeah. The jaunt in Juliet. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to the Pop Bonsai Podcast. All right, Jay. Episode two of our Keevan, 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 Keenan Ivory Wayans. Listen, listeners, <laughs> Jay and I have been on a podcast marathon today. <laughs> we're doing Blank Man. <laughs> yeah, we're doing Blank Man, and then we're gonna do a Meteor Man next. Um, oh, uh, we are on set two of the Stephen King set. This is a four-part series where Jay and I dive into the world of Stephen King to answer such question as, what is essential Stephen King? What is, when we boil it down, if we were to, to simmer it over a stove for eight hours, like a chili, what would, mm. we, what would be stuck to the bottom of our pan? Mm, love me a good bowl of chili. And who would we bludgeon with that pan? Mm. Mm. 
good questions. These are the questions that we're going to answer today. (laughs) Who would we bludgeon with a chili pan? (laughs) Are you hungry, Jay? I'm kind of hungry. I want a taco. (laughs) I want a pizza. (laughs) Call back. Um, So, uh, our first episode, if you listen back to it or if you haven't listened to it, we discussed, it's on uh, line right now, um, Salem's Lot, the 1979 film version, which uh, Stephen King was attached to tangentially. He, he was attached to the production of this TV movie, uh, but also, of course, he wrote the source piece, the 1975 novel, Salem's Lot, 74, 75 mm-hmm. novel, Salem's Lot. So uh-huh. we talked about that last episode, and that kind of was our entree into King. Now we're getting to the, the, the pure stuff. We're talking pure King today, Uncut. Jay. Uncut. Uncut King. Uncircumcised King. What do we got on docket <laughs> for today, Jay? Uh, we have got uh, his short story collection called uh, Skeleton Crew. 1985. Which, yeah, which was published in 1985 and has a lot of stuff that I think people might be familiar with. Uh, the Mist, um, The Monkey, which I believe they turned into Monkey Shines. Am I correct? The I did not monkey know Shine? that. I did not. Oh, is that what that Monkey Shine movie is? I think so. I thought it was that I movie with Brendan Fraser, Monkey Bone. <laughs> Both Equally as horrible. <laughs> um, somehow I've I've seen or I've heard of the raft before. That was I don't know me. how. I think you I think you know more adaptions to these short stories than I know, or you did more research than I did. But other than that, those were the few that I. I think it's was about 20, 22 stories. Two of those are novellas: "The Mist" and "The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet." A couple of poems in there. I know there's four Owen. Um, so a big, I read this digitally. And so I didn't realize how long it was when we selected it. Um, and then I saw a Michael J. Fox holding a copy of it in a photo that I sent Jay, which was great. Like Good 90s, 80s nostalgia. It must have been 80s. Uh, on a library campaign. I'm like, oh, that's a thick ass book. No wonder it's taken me so long to get through these short stories. <laughs> yeah, I did audiobook on this. Ooh, uh, how was the audiobook? Who read it? A lot of people. Uh, Paul oh, Giamatti good, read good. It. That's the way it should. Um, that's the way Paul a short story. And, th- and uh, Paul Giamatti. Which one did Paul Giamatti read? Um, he did the one. I know he did the one. The wedding gig. Um, and he did another. Oh, one. I could see him doing that. Very New Yorky uh, mob uh-huh. mafia. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, and. I don't remember which other one he did, but yeah, it was Ooh. pretty good. Ooh, okay. So, I, some remind me before we leave this podcast, pick a short story from here, and then w- who you'd want to give the audio <laughs> version of it to. Mm. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So, this I gotta say, Jay, um, we are. This is uh, we're in October. Now, for episode two, episode one was at the end of September. We're in October now, so we're in the spooky month. I have been on a king overload. I've been, I've been like the 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 class pupil who's who's going above and beyond. I reread on writing as I was reading these short stories. That that that's what cool. we talked about in episode one, where he talks about writing. Uh, uh, I had never seen the movie Silver Bullet, so I I watched that. 
in addition to these short stories. So I've been going above and beyond. My life has been steeped in Stephen King. I'm st- I'm Stephen steeped. You do this a lot. Yeah, I know you. You like you totally. You're like fully immersed in in what we do. And I I'm, should be more. Like that. I'm writing a project right now, which we're going to be filming and uh, producing with my high schoolers uh, called "The Rise of Tommy Rotten." It's about this teenage zombie in the 1950s who comes back to life and these monologues about the community that that has to deal with his coming back to life. And it's perfect because you know, 1950s, very Stephen King. Um, yeah. You know. The, the the teenagers Stephen King uh, uh, zombies uh, the occult uh, Stephen King and so it's been really cool and I like to do this a lot I like to the summertime we moved into the beach I feel like I'm using I, I maybe I'm using Jay as a a way to explore uh, my own uh, segments on life so Jay I'm gonna let you choose the next set you could explore whatever you want to explore if you want to do kung fu and take some taekwondo classes you know go for it. <laughs> I don't want to be sucking all the juice from this podcast, but... No, no, you're not. Pop Bonsai, Bonsai is all about seizing the day. It's about going forth. It's about jumping into it. And so I have jumped into Stephen King, and I've been living Stephen King, so much so that it's been affecting my dreams, Jay. Oh, that's a lot. When you watch Stephen King movies, when you listen to his thoughts on writing, when you read his short stories, it's impossible for them not to seep into your daily thoughts. Oh yeah. Have you noticed oh, yeah. anything as you as you because this wasn't this was an undertaking this collection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are um, the byproducts for you of of delving into King? Well, one of the things that so this may we, may and, not we, we call it question. one of the kings. One of the kings. <laughs> this may or may not satisfy this question, but um, I've been thinking a lot about something you asked in the last episode. You said, you asked what, what, what I think is the main difference between Joe Hill and Stephen King's writing. And one of the things I've noticed is I think Stephen King writes from a more cynical perspective, whereas a lot of his characters are kind of assholes put in a fucked up situation. Like a lot of these characters, in fact, I can't even think of one character that I'd want to know, you know, that I'd want to be friends with. That I, you think you could be friends with. Whereas opposed to like Joe Hill's books, which I've read a few of his comics, a couple of his books, but they seem to come from a, a little bit less, his characters are a little less cynical. cynical. Yeah. Not to overuse that term, but I feel like there's just a lighthearted, a little bit more of a lightheartedness to his work as opposed to, to his dad's. And honestly, to dear old dad's. I, I think this is the difference between the two. And we're going to be reading um, uh, Basketful of Heads next episode and talking about those in more detail. But I will say that I think that is the genius of King is taking these asshole characters and not necessarily making you care about them, but engaging you with them. Not That's not turning key. you off with them. And mm-hmm. so this was an interesting challenge because we're looking for the most part in the mist and the flexible bullet are a little bit different because they're a little bit longer pieces. So you have the opportunity to develop a character and it would be tough to develop a novella length of a piece with a character that is complete asshole. So uh, like in the mist is probably one of his 
uh, we're going to talk about here in a little bit is probably one of his lesser assholian characters in this collection, uh, our protagonist, because we have to spend more time with them. But if we're mm-hmm. spending 30 pages with the character, they can be an asshole the, the whole time. Um, as we, or, or even 15 pages, like we see with the shooter uh, character in one of the short stories who ends up mm-hmm. massacring you know, people on a college campus, which is very fortuitous, uh, a premonition of, 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 of things that, that, that King is. King is almost like the Ray Bradbury of just general genre. Where he's like, oh my god, like this this is a 1985, and this thing has come to reality. Yeah, um, here. So I think that is a good point. That I think is he is much more cynical uh, towards his characters and about life. But he, yeah, at least this era of King. Now keep in mind, folks, that we're not King, Stephen King experts, and we're talking specifically about a series that he wrote in 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, keep that in mind as we, as we talk about what is king in this in this uh, episode. So let's get into it here. Um, uh, let's talk about the mist. Uh, the the probably the most celebrated sh- uh, novella in this work, the most celebrated story, the most well known story, the most adapted story. It's been adapted into movies, it's been adapted into a miniseries. Neither of which I have seen. I saw a little bit of the movie because I would catch parts of it. It would always play on TV like 10 years ago or something like that. Uh, so I saw parts of it. What initial thoughts on The Mist? Um, this, this, was, this was cracking the book open. This was your first shot at it. Did it, mm-hmm. like, did it engage you? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Because um, like you, uh, I kind of knew a little bit of the, the basic premise of it. But I never, I never saw the movie. I didn't really know much about it. So I knew the mist was horrible. I knew bad things happened when you went into the mist. But um, I thought it was some really good writing in in the in a lot of the peripheral characters. You know, I like how they he kind of made them the, the the conflicts within that group and that that older lady that was starting like a some sort of weird little uh, coup or little tribe against you know she was preaching against his decisions and starting this weird little cult within the group and um you know and and then him viewing her as an actual threat and this powerless old woman who runs like i think an antique shop maybe or something in here all of a sudden in this apocalyptic world gains all the power as a messiah Uh, yeah. Interesting in there. Uh, this, this, what you just touched on, hits back to our thesis that we came up with in Salem's Lot, which is not a new thesis for Stephen King, is that the man knows how to create a community, small mm-hmm. town mm-hmm. communities, right. and give us enough of the characters, sometimes too much of the community. <laughs> I think there might be a little bit, uh, just like Salem's Lot, and I heard the novel is, is even more so. Uh, sometimes it's, we, uh, you know, Stephen King does work with an editor, and he does, uh, I, I, in rereading uh, on the writing, he does give his editor m- more credit than maybe I said that he did in the first episode of Salem's Lot when I was like, it doesn't seem like he cuts much. I, apparently, mm-hmm. he does cut, um, but to a certain point. And um, he doesn't cut peripheral characters uh, to benefit pace, I don't think. Uh, and you see that in the mist uh, when it comes to some of these certain characters on here. 
Yeah, I I don't mind that. I didn't mind it so much in this. Um, you know, I'm just I'm very much of the belief that you know what what some people call you know I I just I'm I'm really into uh, character development mm-hmm. and world building. You know, I I I like that he does this. I mm-hmm. I think. In the endings, it, it makes the, these endings of his just hit even harder, just pay off more. And so I'm willing to go along with it. I'll play along with it. You know, I'm, I'll sit here and I'll listen to his, you know, his neighbor and he, you know, drinks too much beer and what kind of beer he drinks and what, you know, because I, 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 I feel like it, it, I'm banking on that it'll pay off at the end. Well, it's interesting you talked about the endings because we're talking about short stories. So we get to see a lot of endings. We get to see 22 yeah. endings, how Stephen mm-hmm. King ends 22 stories. And The Mist is different than the other stories in here. The rest of the stories, because yeah. they're shorter, they have to build into a most uh, an almost O. Henry-esque ending. Where it's, or I guess the modern version would be M. Night Shyamalan, where there is this big kind of reveal it builds towards some grotesque act or some grotesque revelation uh on here the misc the misc the mist doesn't the mist ends uh, it breathes the ending breathes a little bit more it's given a little uh-huh. bit more room to breathe at the end where it's a little bit more open-ended it's a little bit more um we're riding off into the sunset but this sunset is scarlet red and oozing with pus uh yeah. type of of thing here I found the mist. So I opened this up. I said, let's read the skeleton crew. We had a choice. And I said, well, why don't we read the skeleton crew? There's, there's, we could have read Night Shift or some of his other collections. Uh, and this was originally going to be called Night Moves, this collection. He was going to try to keep the night, the night <laughs> premise going. Yeah, Seeger is. He's going to Seeger it. Um, I'm glad he chose Skeleton Crew because that's just a dope-ass name uh, for a, a collection yeah. of uh, short stories. But... I read this, I read The Mist in one night, mm-hmm. and it, it felt like an experience. It felt yeah. like a world, like as you said. The world building in here was so strong. I, I was in this store with them. I could see the main right. street. I could see the pharmacy. I, 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 when they're running out to their cars, I could picture all that. The, the landscaping of this story in prose this is in the comic book this is in a movie this is the this is the version that i am exposed to this story was so well laid out and so organic that i was compelled to keep reading i couldn't put this down and and there was nothing new in here there was no shocking revelation this was a lovecraftian story very much so yeah it was the bizarre occult without and the older woman has that occult and brings that into it monster movie of the week all combined mm-hmm. together into this tentacled unknown source of evil mm-hmm. and we don't get answers we just get character development we don't even get that much of a plot we just get characters thrown into a scenario and a vague scenario and even the the title the mist is so vague mist itself is so vague as a an entity it has no form it has no function and i'm just rambling now jay but uh it does seem that that the title 
and the source of evil in this is as ambiguous as the plot itself. Yeah, yeah. I that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I never really looked at that before. But me either. Uh, you can even. Throw, <laughs> it's new to me too. <laughs> I'm just. I'm on a podcasting route. We've been podcasting for like four hours, Jay. I'm just like, and, and this too. <laughs> um, I, I I'd even throw in like like government conspiracy, throw because there was a little bit of that. Because remember that there was a, there was some talk about the government, the neighboring the town, school. yeah, yeah. The, the, what a... the experiments are doing over there, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I liked how, yeah, it it it's it dealt with that small little core group of characters that were stuck in that store from that small town, but it also seemed large towards the end when. They're sitting there driving around, and they see no end to this. Mm-hmm. Like apparently, it's they don't know how much of this planet it's enveloped already. Yeah, um, and that was just pretty scary in itself. It, was, uh-huh. it just it had a sense of like desperation, like like oh my gosh, here here are these characters they did this to get away from it, and did they really get away from anything? Mm-hmm. You know? I I wrote a play a couple of years ago called Mimi's Pump and Pie Cafe at the End of the World. I can search it up on YouTube. You can see the road version of we did. Took it to competition. Won the competition. First original play in this to win it. It beat out Antigone. So, Sophocles. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. What's it called? Mimi's Pump and Pie Cafe. Pump, the word pump, and pie cafe at the end of the world. Ah. And so, I wanted to do, it had to be a 40-minute play for this competition. I wanted it to be, I wanted to do something post-apocalyptic. I know it's so cliche now, uh, but... On stage, because I, I haven't seen a genre piece like that on stage. And I just wanted yeah. to trap characters in a Americana setting that was destroyed. And I wanted to see how they would do it. So the world was ending, but I didn't care about how it ended. There was vague references to it. could be this, it could be that. There's a monologue, but who knows where it happened. There's a vague reference to what's happening over here and over here. But it's not about that. It's about the small story of these characters and the manipulations that they're creating in this, this place. And I just realized that now as you're, as you said that, and I'm like, Oh, I think I gravitate to stories like that because I wrote a story like that before I read the mist about, it's not about what's happening. It's about what's going on. You know, it's about, yeah. it's about the people, not the plot. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Stephen King is kind of anti-plot. You know, he's more character-based, and we see that in there. And I, I don't mind that one bit. Yeah, and I don't... I, I Listen, we have a lot of stories to talk about, so I, I don't want to, like, shortchange The Mist. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on The Mist, but uh, I do want to uh, talk about some other short stories in here. So mm-hmm. I, we're not, I'm not going to talk about all these short stories. Some of them were duds, uh, and some of them were, yeah. were real bangers. So, I, uh, Jay, I want to have you throw out a, a, a story um, that you really enjoyed. Okay. Uh, just looking at this, uh, The Raft. The Raft. I really like The Raft. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, go, on, I, go into it. I think it's really funny how... <laughs> uh, he did this in The Mist also, but how he will take this group of characters and, and, and in the raft, it's an even smaller group of characters, four people. And 
in the midst of of tragedy and and blood and extreme terror the the characters still somehow uh still somehow find it in themselves to be horny <laughs> yes you know, so Stephen crazy. King's a pervert, man. He's a little pervert. I love that about him. I love that he's because uh, we talked about. Uh, I think we use it in the cold open and talk about um, King and Shakespeare, and oh, yeah. and you're like, oh, that's a weird. That's like uh, uh, salt and sugar. Uh, I don't think so. I think that what they share is, and this is what I always think about when I present myself in any form, whether it be podcasting. Uh, storytelling or even teaching is I think that the true delight comes from mixing the highbrow and the lowbrow. Yeah. I think that any storyteller who can do that, one, it allows them to reach an, a, a wider audience. It allows them to get the intellectuals in that want to explore heady topics but then it also gets the blue collar in that wants them to spend a page, you know, talking about fucking on a raft when you just saw your yeah. friend, you know, uh, being uh, devoured and, and split in two like a, I think he calls it like a cheerleader doing their final splits, something. There's some <laughs> image of it. Like a touch, oh, a ref signifying a touchdown, I believe, is one of the images he uses as this, <laughs> this a blob in the water is... Uh, sucking his friend and breaking his bones into the water. Mm. Highbrow yep, and yep. lowbrow. King does it. Shakespeare does it. The greats do it. Uh, the sense of being too intellectual. Um, uh, we, you know, Woody Allen does it. Did it. You know. Uh, you know. Um, yeah. uh, and. But other people can't. Other people can only go intellectual. Other people can only go lowbrow. Um, and yeah, I think I think the greats know that right mix. I think there's a, a mix a writer has to establish between what's the amount of dialogue versus detail versus exposition that I need. But just as important as that is what's the right mix of highbrow and lowbrow storytelling that I need to put in here. And Stephen King seems to, to, if he, if you were to say he were to err on one of those areas more than the other, what would you say? Highbrow or lowbrow? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I would see, I, I think a great deal of his intellectual appeal is the, the words the words he chooses craft. yes because the i think something that's so important when i read it's like when i read something is the the words the author chooses to convey the perfect picture of what is happening and and that i love his use of of, of certain words you know like like for some reason um it was in Gosh, I don't remember what which uh, metaphors are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, he there was a character that that he that he described, and his arm shot out like a vaudeville hook. You know, and I'm like, gosh, that's so 
that that just that, that puts the exact picture in your brain as opposed to his arm shot out and grabbed his neck. Yeah. You know, it's like so th- the metaphors part- are are I think there's something for us as mod- 2021 reading a 1985 collection of short stories that uses language and metaphors from the 1950s and 60s when you know <laughs> when he was a kid it there is a gratification like a hamster at a feeding pellet when you get the metaphor it makes you feel smart like you have to understand what vaudeville is to understand what a vaudeville hook is as a metaphor yeah. and there's something about it something very hipstery about reading King now that gives you a sense of like, Oh, cool. Like I'm hip. I'm with it. I understand what Bill <laughs> is. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I love the way certain authors just know how to paint the perfect picture image in your brain. And that's what I think a lot of what his highbrow, what his, what, I guess what makes it a kind of highbrow, I guess, but I don't know, man. Sometimes some of like the the sex stuff, it doesn't take me out of it as much. But some sometimes you, you kind of roll your eyes, like, "Oh, okay. it's too voyeuristic." You know? It's too voyeuristic. He he uh-huh. is he writes it as as the way he writes sex scenes or um, any kind of thing dealing with sex, whether it's masturbation or whatever it is, or just like general. It feels like someone on the outs. Like it's, it feels like someone who watches too much porn. As opposed to someone who's had sex, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense it's, it's, because I it's kind too, of agree. I don't even want to say carnal isn't even the right word. It's too perverted is the right word. It's too skeezy, uh, which I love. I love that. I love that it's not like lurid in a sensual sense. It's not, it's yeah, not sensual no, romantic. It's not, uh, um, uh, what's the um, uh, the big one? Um, uh I was going to say orange is the new black. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. It's not. It's not anything oh, like no. that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is teenage high school sex. Yes. Yeah. yeah high school uh, sex. Uh, it's back. Back. Seat, yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. reached down to his pants and felt the bulge in his pecker. Mm-hmm. He knew that he shouldn't be this horny, but he couldn't help it. He, <laughs> you know. But it's also not like he thrust his member into her awaiting flower. You know, it's not that. It's it's yeah, no, it's yeah. not like Fabio like romance yeah. novels because that would take you out of it too, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, you know, amongst this the carnage in the raft, like seriously, you're gonna do this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So if anything, I would say maybe he airs a was that a dream sequence in that story? Uh, I don't think so. Hmm. I don't know because remember he he was like they were doing it when right it, right right that stuff went from the bottom and grabbed her hair yeah. yeah and it pulled her in yep that's why her hair got in there and then it was like I didn't realize it and she pulled back and it shot back in the up yeah yeah so. <laughs> um, and he yeah, plants that because in the beginning he was like oh she's so hot like and he, she's probably fucked him. You know, yeah, uh, they, they they were like eyeing each other's girlfriends, yeah. And they, you know, so. But yeah, if anything, it's that to answer your question. Mm-hmm. It'll be. What about what do you think? Uh, another story. I, I would say my like my favorite, other than the mist. I have a couple. Oh, no, no. 
What do you oh. what do you think he airs? Do you think he airs on the highbrow? Oh, uh, lowbrow. Low I think he airs yeah. on the lowbrow. Um, uh, just because I think about like a reader like my mom, if they were to read Stephen King, what would turn them off? It would be those paragraphs, and they are yeah. paragraphs. They're not a sentence. Like when he devotes, when he gives you a perverted scene, it's not like uh, and then they fucked and then move on. It's like you get like them, you know, fingering their prick type shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. The deeds. Dirty so, deeds make the Stephen King <laughs> reads. Dirty deeds make the Stephen King reads. <laughs> dirty deeds make the Stephen King reads. <laughs> I don't even know if that's funny, Jay. I think we're just loopy. <laughs> you know, no, it's funny. But that ties into Stephen King because I think he likes ACDC. He used ACDC ah. in the soundtrack of Maximum Overdrive. We will talk about that more in our playlist episode. And you've mentioned yeah, that yeah. before with the rancid little tidbit you threw out last episode. Mm-hmm. You know a lot so, about Stephen King's musical taste, my friend. I'm I'm excited to get to the playlist episode so we can delve further into this. Now you're gonna yeah, have to research because I'm gonna be disappointed if you can't bring some new shit to the table. Well, in one of these, he goes on about the Ramones. In one of these stories, remember which story does he go on about the Ramones? Oh, um, the uh, wait, is this the no? Is that the Bogart one? Um, I did like how he talked about Bogart so much in the the college shooting one. Oh yeah, the Bogart yeah, poster. He had the yeah, poster. Yeah, no, he there was a it was one of the beginning ones. Um, was it the uh, college one? No, because that was too old. That was like set before that. Um, anyways, he, one yeah. of my one of my uh, favorite stories, the jaunt for me, really did it for me. Um, I love this story. It feels, it feels so original. Um, and one of the things that this, I, I, I read another collection. I read uh, uh, Night Shift. Um, but in this one in particular uh, is that Stephen King, to me, is someone who transcends genres. We think of Stephen King as a horror writer or a, uh, uh, like this, creepy writer but he, i mean you look at like shawshank redemption stand by me uh, the green mile uh, and here you really see this man as a as as a writer who can walk between worlds he has the ability to to uh, uh shift genres so effortlessly there's so many genres in here there's the raft as jay was talking about which feels almost more like a uh, uh a uh horror camp like halloween a teen horror romp and then yeah, yeah. you have something like the jaunt which feels so rape like well I, there are more ray bradbury stories s than this one um but this it's it feels the character is very einsteinian um in this, you have this mad professor in the barn working on the ability to transport something from one location to the other. This is, I'm giving you the plot of the jaunt right now. Um, and did it remind me of the fly a little bit? Yes, it did. Oh my god, Jeff Goldblum. I think this is the second time we've mentioned Jeff Goldblum being <laughs> a great casting for a Stephen King story. You really, Hollywood, you really messed up in not casting. Jeff Goldblum in more Stephen King related story roles in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he has mm-hmm. been associated with any, any Stephen King properties. Um, That's a good question. And so uh, the jaunt is 
the majority of the story is this Edison-like character, more eccentric, um, working on, in his barn, the ability to transport something from one location to the other. And he accidentally transports his fingers. And um, in this process, you're like, this is a lot of story to talk about the process of how to transfer something. So he does a lot of work. He does a lot of world building, as Jay said earlier, on on the premise of the rules of how does one thing get transported to the other. And his, his design is flawless, except for when he puts the brains of living creatures, especially mice in this story, they die on their way out. Some of them die immediately, and some of them uh, die gradually. And so mm-hmm. through the process of testing these creatures and objects, which King takes us through, very succinctly, we find that, oh, there's something that happens when you go through one portal and into the next, that if your eyes are open and you see what's in between, if you're conscious for what's in between, what's in between is infinity and horror, and it will drive you mad. And so the story takes place because in this world, uh, They've used the jaunting process to transport people from different planets or to different parts of the country or mail. It solved all the resource problems. It solved all the uh, industrial problems. And so it's a father telling his kids the story of how jaunting became this thing. And it, so it's like someone's cel- the way you would celebrate the invention of the light bulb. He's trying to be positive yeah. about it, but not mentioning the dark undertones. And he hints at them. And then finally, his, he and his kids and his wife are about to jaunt off to like this other planet. And he's told his son, this, his brave son, this whole story. And so the only way that human beings can jaunt is to be put under sedation so that the way they don't, they're not conscious to see infinity, to see beyond in this jaunt. And so they all get knocked out and they wake up moments later in a different planet. And he hears his wife screaming and he sees his son has gone mad because his son uh, faked taking the sedative or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And he has gone mad because he saw eternity and he tells his dad his line. He goes, it's so much longer than you thought. So theoretically, this his son has been conscious in a undefined state for eternity and he's madness is caused when he's quickly brought back to earth and to me it was that story was so haunting i read it before bed and i thought about it for two days afterwards it affected my sleep it stuck with me it was like when you eat a meal and then you're farting that out for a couple days and you smell that meal that it was so (laughs) haunting to me and to me, that is a good story that haunts you in either a romantic way or a good way or it is. That was so haunting to me. Yeah, uh, it was. It was. That was another one of my favorites. Um, it, it, so I just a quick little thing. So it appeared that the John appeared in the 1981 issue of Twilight Zone magazine, mm-hmm. which I can totally see. They're making it into a movie now. No. It's optioned. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. As but of yeah, like May did... 2021, they had 
they had, I don't know if they're going to be like a full length movie or if it's even going to go through, but it, Gosh, how it seems more sport? fitted for a Twilight Zone episode. Maybe Jordan yes. Peele could do something with that. Uh, but he likes to do like Ray centered stuff, but it feels very well. Yeah. Go ahead. It's like sci-fi horror. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's weird. I wonder you have to do a little bit. It almost feels like an episode of drunk history, (laughs) but it it does feel like an episode of the twilight zone Mm -hmm. because it's, it's something that's, it's, I don't see a lot of, a lot of exp- I, I can't picture it. It's like it, it, it punches quick. You know, it's, yeah. it, it's like a one, two, and it's done. So, yeah. and, and, and I think because of that, it's so, because it, it's so quick, it's it, what makes it so haunting. Um, it almost seems like dragging it out would maybe lessen that. Here's a story that I think, if you got to it, that um, uh, is. Stephen King has said on an interview with Stephen Colbert, I watched the interview, this is his favorite story. And that Uh, is Survivor Type. With the doctor? Yeah. With the asshole doctor? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. So Survivor Type, a quick uh, summary is, uh, uh, an ex-surgeon is stranded on a deserted island after trying to smuggle heroin and he's stranded out there. He can't get food, so he starts cutting off his pieces of his own body to start eating it. Um, it's not a long story compared to some of the other ones in here. Um, haunting as well. Um, it's, it's very Italian New York. And I love it that he makes him not a stereotypical surgeon. It's not like, and then I was this. He's, he's very like a New York huckster who happened to end up being this brilliant guy who ends up being the surgeon. And now there's this New York grit and determination to survive mixed with the intelligence of a surgeon who knows how to cut his own body apart and eat it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What were your but thoughts? Huckster, you're say hustler. Hustler. Yes. Not huckster. Yeah. Hustler. He is kind of a hustler too. Yeah. But I thought I liked this one too. Um, see again, you're not. This is a 19. I, I don't know when he originally wrote the story, but it's in this 1985 collection. And so it's 1985. Now it seems like something that people have maybe borrowed from or something like that. But 1985, wow. Imagine reading that in 1985. I know. I know. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't. It's, again, it's it's sort of Twilight Zone Twilight Zone ish. Um, I liked the fact that you. You didn't like the character, but see again, man. He the way he you writes respected his determination. Yeah, you're still involved. You're still on board with him. You're still you still want to know what happens to him. You, There's one point you know, where he's like, so on this island, every now and then seagulls will land, gulls yeah, will yeah. land, and he has to like try to kill them with rocks. And at first, he kills one when he has all his limbs, but then later he's crawling after them as he cuts off pieces of himself. So you have at one point a a human who has no legs from his knees down crawling after these gulls to try to brain them with these rocks. And he's unable to do it because he's so, uh, you know, uh, anemic and or like so deteriorated that he can't even malnourished that he can't even do it. And he's dragging his 
limbless corpse across the island to try to kill these gulls and dreaming about food. Oh, so good, Jay. Such a good story. Like, when I talked about... Well, I guess we didn't do it in this podcast. Uh, on a different podcast that we, we uh, um, Jay and I were in, I said, How, October's coming up. Turn off the TV. Watch the movies and all that stuff like that. But one night, light some candles and read to your family a spooky short story. Now, obviously, this one is a certain age demographic, but the language in it isn't bad. It's not like there's a lot of F-bombs or, or sex or anything no. in there. But there is a lot of body horror in here and a lot of grotesqueness. This, if you look the candles on October, October 29th, 30th, or 31st, and gathered your family around, put some snacks, put some cocktails in their hands, and you read to them the story, it would take you maybe between, I don't know, I'm guessing with the page count, maybe like 40 minutes to an hour 15, depending on how you read it. Hour reading. What a great experience. What a great, yeah. what a great experience to share with people on Halloween. Yeah, man, I'm going to do that. I'm mm. going to take your advice and I'm going to do that. Um, so a- another one that, that like you were saying haunted me um, was, uh, was grandma. Oh yeah. Yeah. Grandma. Yeah. That What'd you like about was, that? Well, I like the fact that I think pretty much every kid at some point is uh, knows or comes in contact with your actual grandma and aunt, a distant relative. That's that's kind of so old that you're there's a little bit of fear in there, um, and he just he the language he uses to describe grandma. He, he constantly uses grotesque, flabby, elephant-like. Um, just is just this this gnarly language to describe this old lady, and you know, you you kind of like start to feel sorry for her, and and you know, it's just oh, is this just sweet old lady? Blah blah blah. But you know, it turns out she kind of really isn't, and that's what I I, I liked about it is because it it kind of plays on your suspicion of of like old you're older you know like oh you know like grandma always wants to hug me and uh, it's kind of gross or whatever and and um so it kind of for me it kind of tapped into that that uh that old those old feelings i used to have towards like an elderly relative (laughs) you know And, and honestly i kind of even forgot i ever had those those feelings um but yeah i don't know did you like it yeah it wasn't my it wasn't wasn't one of my favorite ones uh on there i don't think it was called grandma was it um what's the story official title of it i don't know yeah yeah yeah, grandma yeah yeah yeah. but they spell it like on on, uh, grandma um yeah like um I I I I'll, I'll be honest. I stepped out for his his comments on that. Uh, so I want to I want to keep going with some different stories as we're to oh, sure, stay sure, with our time. Um, I thought uh, um, for me the another one would be uh, is the word processor of the gods. 
That one was good. Uh, this was one good. felt very. Um, uh, 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 yeah, I feel like in the '90s, like Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark would like do this with video games or something like this, where you know it feels very monkey's paw. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, on here, uh, I thought that was a really strong one, and it showcases. Um, uh, Stephen King. It was, it was really fun to read it, like the word processor, because it was so dated. You know, he called it. Yeah. It's called the word processor of the gods. It's about kind of building this own computer. But I felt that one to be uh, very not gross for the sake of being gross, but there was a, a real question on there about when you look at someone in your life's life and you say that life should be my life. Yeah. I I I deserve that more than them. So in this story, it's about a man whose nephew dies and his nephew leaves him a computer and that computer has the power, whatever you type on this word processor becomes true. So you can create things and delete things. So uh, as the story evolves, you realize the writer, of course, a very Stephen King thing, and several protagonists in this story are writers. Um, and... Uh, he starts to delete aspects of his life. It starts to add aspects of his life. He should have had his nephew as his son, as opposed to his own son. So he deletes mm -hmm. his own son. He should have had his brother's wife as his wife. They would have fit better with him. And so it was this really haunting, not in the images of the story or the creepiness of the story. It's not that creepy of a story. It's more just kind of like eerie. Um, like, ooh, that'd be, you know weird um but at the same time i felt it was very touching and it made me look at my own life and be like this idea of of jealousy and like i i deserve that and and what that what that means to it and it didn't have the bad ending <laughs> you know as, right uh, as things have here so so we, the, go ahead go, sorry go ahead. please i just want to say real quick um, one of the things that made it a little bit um, not less eerie and kind of like, oh, if I remember correctly, it was the son. It was his nephew that he felt he that built this computer for him mm -hmm. to do this because he felt it, too. Like he felt like he was he was mismatched as well. Because his, his dad was oh, the protagonist's father. The father bullied the dad you talk about breaking his magic eight ball. And so yeah. the protagonist knows he did the same things to his son. And so there's a shared trauma between the nephew and the brother from this one man who's now dead. And he took his whole family with him because he's a drunk and he crashed his fucking car off a cliff. So there's a bitterness, there's a regret and there's a longing and a shared trauma. It's two victims who are like, we could have, if you were mine, you would have fit better with me. But also the reason that he feels like his son isn't because of genetics. It's because of a shared trauma. And so the reason that he feels like, oh, we, th you should have been my son isn't because of like, oh, this is just how you are as a person. It's you suffered the same trauma and it turns you into a similar person. Yeah. And that yeah. they don't it's not explicit in there. It's something you have to like take away. Maybe I'm taking away the wrong thing, but that was an interesting mm -hmm. take on, on that. So I want to talk about one more story here, Jay. 
Sure, uh, sure. And I don't know. So we talked about some of our favorite stories, and we were able to kind of go into it. There is a story early on, and it is the cover of the original version of uh, Skeleton Crew. Skeleton Crew has a monkey with symbols, the old toy symbol monkey that we've made fun of in like one of the Toy Story movies, right? It's like, click, 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 you know, the creepy symbol monkey. So it, it gets the titular cover of it, the monkey. What do you think about that story? Um, first of all, uh, in the audiobook, Matthew Broderick read it. No way. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so it was it was okay. I I, I didn't it wasn't one of my favorites. I, I liked it because um it did do a lot of kind of world building in it. You kind of got like the sense of, uh, you know, the history of the monkey and how he found it and blah, blah, blah. But um, for me at the end, it didn't pay too, off. It was too long for what you, what it was too long for what it, what the payoff was. Yeah. 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 I do so, like, I think, I also think that, that the imbued totem creepy totem has been done so much since 1985 and probably a little bit before that it's just like now we we've seen it so much where a child's toy is in demonic yeah but i did like aspects of it i mean i like the premise of it um but i, I think I, that i think that that's why i like it. i think the premise has been borrowed so much and i think this is one of the origins of it being used like that Probably uh, I did like, I did like the premise of it and I did like parts of it, but um, yeah, for me, it was just a little long winded. For, for what we're talking about uh, folks, if you haven't read the monkey, it's uh, that symbol, a creepy little furry symbol monkey. Um, this kid grows up with it and it's brought into his house and people start dying around him. Every time the monkey claps its symbols and then he thinks he gets rid of it as as a child. It has a very it vibe, where something from your childhood comes back as an adult. Mm-hmm, and that is mm-hmm. something very Stephen King as well. Facing your childhood traumas now as an adult. And I think that is very Stephen King. I think when Stephen I think when Stephen King becomes sober, he has to face a lot of his childhood trauma, you know, being a single child. Um and in a you know a, a tougher world uh and i think and in a world where psychoanalysis is very popular i think uh, a, in a lot of the stories like it and like the monkey it's adults having to go back and face their childhood fears uh, which is a great story premise and trope to use and stephen king usually does pretty masterfully sometimes he can do it a little bit long-winded like in it and like in the monkey, but uh, a great idea to explore nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, no, it was cool. I do like the premise, but yeah, at the end, I'm just like, eh, that's it. Um, but it, it, I want to just throw in a couple of things here, real quick. You know why the raft seems so familiar? As I'm reading this now, it was uh, part of uh, Creep Show Two. Hmm. They they did it in, in that 1987 film Creep Show Two. Um, they adapted the raft. I never saw and it. Word, yeah, I, I must have seen it. I must have seen it because I remember that um, word processor of the gods was actually uh, an episode of Tales from the Dark Side hmm. in 1984. And Grandma was adopted 
um, into an episode of the Twilight Zone, um, and gosh, oh, and into a film called Mercy. Hmm. hmm. Crazy, and of course, The Mist. We all know was it was a full on TV, uh, full on movie. Um, yeah, and it says here the jot will be made into a feature film production company by or a feature film by production company Plan B Entertainment. I don't know. So, I don't want that to be. Uh, I, I think that I want literature to be a place, the only place you can go to to hear certain stories, like the survivor yeah. type, like the jaunt. I want because I don't want to make it too easy. I, I want people to read more, and I I, I don't I want know. everything that's cool in text to be made easily consumable in media. Because I want people like 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 we t- talked about like what the why the last man comic or or like preacher and as much as I'm like oh yeah I want to see like what you do with that part of me the hipster part of me is like no 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 if you want that you got to put the work into it I, I I don't want everything that's every great story that starts off with a typewriter and a page to be easily consumable I want I want to encourage people because I want I want to tell my young students to be like. Oh, if you're only watching films or TV shows, you're missing out on so many great stories. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I feel the same way, but it's because like, you know, when you read something, it's, I mean, this is just going to go on like some sort of diatribe because I've done this before. I, I might've even done this on this exact podcast, but a lot of times when you, when you read something, it's so, you put so much more into it. You know, it's, it's, you invest a lot of yourself into it um, because you're using more of your imagination. You're using a lot more of, uh, of your, of your own creativity to, to, in your imagination. But when, when you watch a movie, that's all done for you, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think you lose a lot of that. I think it, it cheapens the experience. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's 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 not as intimate, and that's why I'm always no. like encouraging. And I don't I don't mean like you have to read it physically. I mean listen to it on audiobook or have someone read it to you, like in mm-hmm. in some candlelight performance of it. Uh, but hear the language of it, like watch it paced out as it is on the page. So Jay, as we come to an end here, I'm gonna bring back that question that I asked you at the beginning. Pick a story, oh, and who man. would you want to narrate it? I oh, thought about it good. when I left the uh, podcast for a second, and then I, I thought about who, what story I want and who I want to read. Would you like me to go first? Yeah. I, you know, one of my favorite stories in here is The Jaunt, and I would like The Jaunt read by Michael Shannon. Really? Yeah. Michael Shannon, huh? I feel like he would capture that barnyard experience of this eccentric creator kind of like, you know... You know, he ran across a barn and, uh, you know, that type of thing. You know, I, th- I feel like that. I feel like, well, or uh, let me just, I guess I should say Michael Shannon should read a Stephen King story. <laughs> since the jaunt is one of my favorites from this piece, I chose the jaunt. But I think he would be great at just about any Stephen King story. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So I'm going to choose survivor type. And... I want Emerald Lagosi. Uh, 
Oh, who's, <laughs> no. the, who's the cook? Who's the famous cook? Bobby Flay. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, I want it read by uh, Ray Liotta. Oh, good choice. Ray Liotta. Uh, reading any Stephen King story would be great, but especially that one. Because he's got that New Yorkness to it. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm thinking like Goodfellas, Ray Liotta. Yeah. You know, and he's got that like that kind of like edgy, like like he's because th- this doctor, he's not a good dude. I mean, he was a drug addict. He was a he 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 sold prescription pads. He, you know, the dude was kind of a criminal. I mean, he he washed up with a boatload of heroin yeah. with him. So I think having someone like that who conveys even it's his voice, like just danger, you know. Uh, in this would would be pretty fun to read to, to listen to. Yeah, I was in the Ray Liotta reading any of these stories would be fucking fantastic. But you know what else is fantastic? The fact that we still have two more episodes in our Stephen King podcast, and it's October, <laughs> the spooky season. So next episode, come back and join us for our third part of our Stephen King exploration series where we look at something that's tangential to Stephen King, which is his son, Joe Hill. And Joe Hill writes. He writes for movies and he writes for novels and he writes comic books. And we're going to read one of those comic book series on his own label called Hill House. And the novel, the graphic novel we're going to read is called Basketful of Heads. You can pick it up on Amazon. You can read it digitally or you can uh, order the uh, book itself. It, it's it's not a long read, so if you stuck with us through Skeleton Crew and read along with us, you get a little bit of a reprieve here. But we're still in the wordsmith world when we're dealing with a comic book. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, what uh, what things uh, Steve, Joe Hill gleaned from his father and, and what is essentially Stephen King. And uh, I, I'd love to keep talking, but I'm it's getting dark and on the horizon, it's just wave and it's 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 coming right at us and it's oh no ah it's the next pop wave